Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chasley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Abe away, the Japanese Prime Minister resigns, citing health grounds. Fear and fury, President Trump lays out his re-election strategy. And TikTok team up, Walmart and Microsoft join forces in the app acquisition bid. It's Friday, let's make a move. Once again to First Move, great to be with you as always for a jam-packed final show of the week. The sudden resignation of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe just hours ago among some of our top stories today. The nation's longest serving Prime Minister resigning due to ill health. The decision, of course, coming at a critical moment in the COVID crisis and amid a deep downturn in the economy too. Japanese stocks dropped on the news, down some 1.4% at the close, but they were off their lows. What next for the country? Well, we've got analysis coming right up. Japan, though, the underperformer in a solid Asia session. The Shanghai Composite rising, as you can see, some 1.6%. Hong Kong and South Korea also advancing. What about here in the United States? Well, the bulls remain buoyant. The S&P 500 continuing to make fresh record highs. Helped along yesterday, though, by the Federal Reserve, confirming, I think, what we already knew, that they're ready to accept higher levels of inflation and wage growth before they raise interest rates. And that could take years. Let's be clear. We got very little detail on how this will work in practice. But the hope is that recoveries as a result will be stronger. Recovery was key to President Trump's convention speech last night as he pledged to create 10 million new jobs in 10 months if re-elected. Remember, their old jobs lost during the COVID crisis, but hey, having them back is critical to the nation's healing, among other things. We'll discuss it all with Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman very shortly. But the real big news out of Asia overnight, political change afoot in Japan. Let's get to the drivers. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe announcing his resignation, citing his worsening health. Despite of the support, even though I have one year to go in my tenure, and with other challenges that have not been addressed yet, and amid the coronavirus outbreak, I decided to step down as the Prime Minister. I would like to send my apologies to the people of Japan. And Will Ripley joins us now. Will, we obviously feel sorry for the Prime Minister and his decision here to uh, step down early, but a critical, pivotal time. He comes and has been under fierce pressure over the handling of COVID. The economy's in a downward spiral again. What do we make of this, Will? Julia, 2020 was supposed to be Shinzo Abe's banner year. 
uh, before the pandemic turned our world upside down, he was going to host the Chinese President Xi Jinping to Tokyo, which would have been a huge development considering the tensions historically between China and Japan. The Tokyo 2020 Olympics were supposed to be his crowning achievement. He uh, had uh, basically been the champion of, of billions of dollars, tens of billions, according to some estimates, to put on these games successfully, to build infrastructure, to add jobs. And he imagined that tourists would flock to Japan and then they'd travel through the country and this would be the turning point that could get the Japanese economy uh, you know, into a, into a kind of service sector, hospitality, tourism-driven economy, and that people around the world would flock in. And of course, tourism is non-existent at the moment because of travel restrictions. The Olympics, it's up in the air whether they will even happen at all. So um, Shinzo Abe was accused in the early months of the pandemic, like other world leaders, of downplaying the situation, of not taking it seriously enough, perhaps of you know, focusing so much on trying to save the Olympics that he didn't, uh, didn't take the steps that he could have taken early on to prevent what Japan is now seeing, which is huge record daily hikes in the number of infections. Uh, you know, Japan had a you know, pretty slow start in terms of the numbers, but the numbers have really picked up and the public is angry and they're angry about uh, the economy. They're angry about their lives and they have accused Prime Minister Abe of being out of touch, of not really understanding the struggles of everyday Japanese. And so his, his approval ratings, his disapproval ratings have, have just been, have been really, really tough uh, to deal with. Um, but you know, he had a lot of big ideas. He started a conversation about getting more women in the workplace. He started a conversation about rethinking Japan's pacifist constitution. He wanted to revise the constitution, make Japan more assertive on a global stage. He was able to befriend President Trump, the first world leader to do so. He had an alliance with President Obama, and he's, he's had similar alliances with leaders all around the world, and that was probably a key strength. He really wanted to bring Japan back in a stronger form and elevated standing on a global stage. And I think he acknowledged in his comments today that a lot of those goals albeit very difficult goals in a change-resistant society like Japan, just haven't come to fruition yet. Yeah, the practice was far tougher perhaps than the theory, and I agree with you, super bold ideas. Will, very, very quickly, who might follow? Who can step into the breach here? Well, that's uh, the big question. It's going to be somebody in the Liberal Democratic Party because uh, Prime Minister Abe will essentially stay uh, as Prime Minister until someone else is chosen. It could be anywhere from the finance minister, Taro Aso, um, the defense minister, Taro Kono. But, you know, basically big names are being thrown out. Abe might have his favorites. I think Fumio Kishida, the former foreign minister, probably is the one he's going for, not doing so well in the polls right now. But the key is it's going to be somebody in the party who probably shares a large part of Abe's ideology. So Abenomics... Well, it may not continue in the name, Abenomics in practice probably will continue, Julia. Yes, the theme continues. Will Ripley, thank you so much for that analysis there. All right, and from a leader standing down to one standing for a fresh term, Donald Trump accepted his nomination for president at the Republican National Convention last night at the White House. Jeff Zeleny has all the details. President Trump formally accepted his party's renomination turning the White House South Lawn into a full-blown Trump rally. I profoundly accept this nomination for President of the United States. On the final night of the Republican convention, the president spoke before more than 1,500 supporters, with few masks and no social distancing. This after months of the Trump administration's own health experts urging people to avoid large gatherings to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Trump praised and misrepresented his handling of the crisis, 
while the U.S. continues to face a high human cost from the pandemic. We are meeting this challenge. We are delivering life-saving therapies and will produce a vaccine before the end of the year or maybe even sooner. He also warned a Joe Biden-led response would cripple the economy. Instead of following the science, Joe Biden wants to inflict a painful shutdown on the entire country. Joe Biden's plan is not a solution to the virus, but rather it's a surrender to the virus. My administration has a very different approach. To save as many lives as possible, we are focusing on the science, the facts, and the data. Yet Biden has only said he would shut down the country if scientists recommend it. I would be prepared to do whatever it takes to save lives because we cannot get the country moving until we control the virus. As the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, tried to soften his image. I recognize that my dad's communication style is not to everyone's taste. People gathered outside the White House to protest racial injustice. Trump did not mention Jacob Blake, who was shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin earlier this week, or two of the people allegedly killed by a 17-year-old during protests. But he did warn a Biden presidency would lead to an attack on public safety. We must never allow mob rule. We can never allow mob rule. In the strongest possible terms, the Republican Party condemns the rioting, looting, arson, and violence we have seen in Democrat-run cities all, like Kenosha, Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, and New York, and many others, Democrat-run. It was one of many blistering attacks on Biden, a moderate Democrat whose record Trump repeatedly mischaracterized as radical. Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. Ahead of a fireworks celebration, Trump told voters November's election could have historic consequences. At no time before have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas. This election will decide whether we save the American dream or whether we allow a socialist agenda to demolish our cherished destiny. And Jeff Zeleny joins us now. Jeff, as the president was saying there, two parties, two very different visions here. The Republicans and uh, Donald Trump, clearly the underdogs coming into this. Have they turned sentiment, do you think? There's no question that President Trump needed to reset his candidacy during this uh, four-day Republican National Convention. And there are many signs that he did. It seems that he's finally found a message on which to go after uh, the Democratic uh, ticket on to go after Joe Biden on. He's sort of flailed around a little bit in trying to find a criticism that would actually stick. But it it does seem, you know, fueled by the, the racial unrest and the protests that we are seeing across the country, that the president is seizing on that in this law and order message. But it is also dripping with the fear mongering. In many respects, it's dripping with the racism as well. So there is a sense here that uh, Democrats are always worried about being portrayed as a weaker party, not a, a party of strength. So that will be Joe Biden's challenge here over the next 67 days until Election Day to push back on this and really try and keep this election to be a referendum on the incumbent, a referendum on the president as opposed to a choice between the two of them. But, Julia, four weeks is the first debate. That will be the first sense here 
uh, when we see Biden and Trump side by side, how to really measure them up. But I think, no doubt, Trump has turned a bit of a corner here. We'll see what the voters say as they take a measure of these messages. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And uh, Jeff, very quickly, 1,500 people there, a lot of them not wearing masks, most of them not wearing masks. Had they been tested? No, there were not widespread Mm. testing for most of the people, uh, at least the ones that we spoke to. And look, you could just see they were not following the protocols. So yes, it was outside, but they were not wearing masks. So we'll see if there's any fallout from that. But certainly it is an image that we will see again and again. I wouldn't be surprised if it showed up in Democratic ads as a leadership moment. I mean, Joe Biden is the one saying, look, you should wear your mask here. So Uh, We'll see if that lingers. But boy, it sure looked uh, strange last night as the South Lawn of the People's House here essentially became a Trump rally. Julia, just checking, just checking. Health first. Jeff Zeleny, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right. Walmart shopping for TikTok US, the retail giant teaming up with Microsoft in the attempt to buy the Chinese app. The news comes just hours after TikTok's recently appointed CEO, Kevin Meyer, left the company. Selena Wang is in Hong Kong for us. Selena, great to have you with us. This is an interesting one because this is all about monetization, looking at the future e-commerce and potential advertising opportunities that this platform presents. Talk us through what we think of this. Absolutely, Julia. I'll just start out with this. TikTok is one of America's most influential social networks. It has about 100 million monthly active users in the U.S. So what does that mean for Walmart? It means access to a very large young consumer base that could potentially buy its products online or in store. It gives it very valuable user behavior insights on that coveted Gen Z demographic. It also gives it a very lucrative, as you mentioned earlier, potentially very important advertising base. It could also play into Walmart's rollout of Walmart Plus, which is expected to compete with Amazon Prime. In addition to that, Walmart could also help transform TikTok into an e-commerce platform for its creators and users. In fact, Douyin, which is ByteDance's Chinese version of TikTok, already has e-commerce integrated into it. In terms of Walmart teaming up with Microsoft, that may seem like an odd pair, but this isn't the first time they've worked together. In 2018, Walmart signed a five-year deal to use Microsoft's cloud computing services. They're both investors in Indian e-commerce giant Flipkart. It is unclear at this point, however, how they would split up their stake in TikTok if they were successful for this bid, which they are still competing with Oracle for. But either way, Julia, this is going to be a massive deal. Analysts estimate that TikTok's US operations are worth between 40 to $50 billion. Yeah, you have to envisage the advertising and the e-commerce opportunities in order to even imagine that kind of evaluation, even when you're talking about 100 million users. What does the exit of the CEO tell us? One, about the likelihood of this deal actually taking place, quite frankly, and the fact that he wanted to be the global CEO. And clearly there's not really going to be a global business if this deal takes place. Essentially, what Kevin Mayer is saying, this isn't what he signed up for. As you said, he signed up for a global role, not a potentially more diminished regional carved up position that has to uh, talk to a much larger and obey a much larger technology giant. Remember, he was only hired about four months ago. He was a major high profile hire. It was part of TikTok's way to distance itself from its Chinese owner. At the time, of course, he saw this as a massive global opportunity. He had left a very high profile position at Disney where he was seen as a potential successor to Bob Iger. He had overseen the launch of Disney Plus. 
that situation has drastically changed. In an internal memo to staff, he wrote, quote, in recent weeks, as the political environment has sharply changed, I've done significant reflection on what the corporate structural changes will require and what it means for the global role that I signed up for. His departure also indicates that a deal is imminent. Mm -hmm. In fact, according to Reuters, ByteDance aims to close, not close, but to enter exclusive talks with a bidder in the next 24 to 48 hours. And Julia, we've been talking about the twists and turns with ByteDance over the past few weeks. It all just underscores how difficult it is moving forward going to be for Chinese-owned or Chinese technology companies in the United States as the Trump administration increasingly tries to decouple the two technology ecosystems. Yes, a dance with many steps and fast music. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that, as always. And we'll be putting some of those questions to TikTok later in the show. We'll be joined by the company's vice president and head of US policy. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where Wall Street is firmly set to open in the green. New numbers before the bell showing U.S. personal spending rising 1.9 percent last month, a slower pace, let's be clear, than seen in May and June. Personal incomes rose almost half a percent. This data collected before the $600 a week enhanced benefits ended for millions of jobless Americans. Congress, of course, still AWOL on new aid and unemployment claims are still rising by one million former workers a week. Fed Chair Jay Powell assuring investors once again yesterday that he will use all the tools that he has available to help boost growth. His message to markets is that rates will stay lower for longer, even if inflation overshoots the Federal Reserve's targets. But how can the Fed boost inflation when prices are falling globally? And will investors as a result now be incentivized to invest in riskier assets? Who better to ask than New York Times columnist and Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, who joins us now. He's also the author of the book, Arguing with Zombies. Paul, fantastic to have you on the show as always. What do you make of the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell signaling here? I can see uh, plenty of flaws in the practice, if not the theory. Well, sure. This is all about expectations. Um, at the moment, the, the Fed does not have, they, they will never admit it, they don't have a lo- whole lot of ammunition. Uh, uh, you know, rates are zero. QE is, has never been entirely clear how effective it is. Um, what they're basically saying is, well, trust us, we will keep rates low for a long, long time with the hope that that will give the economy some boost. And maybe it does. But I, I, I'm in the camp that finds it hard to get excited about this. This doesn't seem to me to be very much of a change from what they've been doing anyway. I mean, the idea is as well, if we see inflation at some point in the future, then that will arguably see the market react anyway. We'll see long terms, long term rates rise, whatever they're doing. Yeah. And that will have a negative yeah, impact many, on many housing. Years ago, I, yeah, many, many years ago, I, I I said that what the Bank of Japan, remember, they were here first, uh, they experienced this kind of situation. I said that what they needed to do was to credibly promise to be irresponsible, that they needed to say to people, <laughs> we will not tighten when the when inflation starts to rise. Um, and um, what we've learned since then is that's actually really hard to do. Uh, people, uh, first of all, people don't necessarily think that much ahead. And secondly, they tend to assume that uh, when push comes to shove, central bankers will be central bankers and they will, they will raise rates at the first whiff of inflation. 
Some might argue that uh, the Federal Reserve wouldn't have to promise to be credibly irresponsible if Congress were responsible about providing more support in a crisis. And as I just mentioned, they're AWOL. I mean, this is a huge problem. This is huge. I mean, if you look at the, um, so the personal income report just came out and last month, um, the, um, the, the $600 payment, the pandi- pandemic unemployment compensation was $900 billion at an annual rate. It was more than 4% of GDP in this special aid to workers who you know, uh, uh, desperately need it. And that's just gone. It's been replaced by, you know, a a hope that eventually a little bit of money might trickle through from uh, President Trump's executive order. But um, you can't. That's a huge fiscal contraction, and it's not really showing in the data yet. But it's got to be a, a real concern for the economy over the next couple of months. Enough to push the U.S. economy back into recession, Paul. Possibly. I mean, but there are two forces operating in different directions here. Uh, one of them is that. Um, it, the, it's not so much the policy on reopening as the fact, I think, that the private sector is finding ways to operate in a pandemic mm. environment. You just look at the proliferation of outdoor dining, things like that. So the, there are ways in which people are gradually adapting to this unpleasant new world, which are our plus, which lead to some job gains. But on the other hand, yeah, we're hitting the economy. We're slamming it with a uh, what amounts to massive fiscal austerity at a time when we are really not prepared for that. President Trump said he promises to add 10 million jobs over the next 10 months. Credible? It's not impossible, right? I mean, mm. we've been seeing, no one knows, but the, you know, some estimates suggest we might be adding uh, uh, on the order of a million or maybe a bit less jobs uh, at, you know, the, the numbers are all very, very hard to, to parse right now. But, you know, that's not great. Uh, even if, if that happens, that still leaves us below where we were at, uh, early in the year, and that's an enormous period of suffering in between. So, um, and in any case, you know, if, if that's what he wants to do, he should have actually been pushing Congress to have a real uh, plan to keep up the incomes of unemployed workers, and, and he isn't doing that. Yes, compromise required. Paul, your views of uh, this president and this administration are very clear, I think, to our regular viewers and to those who uh, read your work. What did you make of the RNC? I I thought it was just, I mean, it was really just very odd because it was all, um, don't be afraid of the things that are actually the scary things that are actually happening. You know, they always talk about the pandemic in the past tense, even though a thousand people are dying a day. Um, and do be afraid of things that mostly aren't happening. Yes, we've had some urban unrest, uh, and you know, but and there's been some bump in the murder rate, but this is not a country that is uh, full of burning cities and, and mobs of, of violent criminals. It's actually still a, a country that is vastly safer than it's been for most of my life. And uh, so um, this weird thing that we're supposed to be terrified of that wild Marxist revolutionary Joe Biden uh, and not be terrified of a pandemic that is still killing us at the rate of uh, you know, a 9-11 every few days. It's, it's bizarre. It's interesting, though, even the New York Times this week said that if you look at the tragedies that happened in Wisconsin, in Minnesota with Floyd George, it arguably plays to that concept. It plays into President Trump's hands. Do, do you believe the polls or do you think this no, election no, is going to be tighter? 
nobody knows. I mean, the polls, uh, polling got a bad rap uh, in 2016. Uh, national polling was pretty accurate. It was uh, some of the state polls, unfortunately, and you know, fortunately, depending on how you put it, but the polls in a few swing states were were off. But pollsters have made adjustments. Uh, I don't. I, I think it is clearly the case that that Biden is ahead right now. That if the election were held today, uh, Trump would be an ex-president. Uh, now. What what happens? How it actually plays? Who knows? But the um, it's it's hard to know exactly what is what is Trump uh, running on besides fear of this crime wave that is mostly exists only in his mind. I mean the um, his economic record no longer looks particularly good, um, and the uh, it's really hard to know what else is is out there that's supposed to be the the plus, except if you can somehow convince people that that this mild-mannered uh, guy in his 70s is, in fact, somehow a radical threat to American values. Or those around him, I guess. Does the stock market well, matter, yes. Paul? No, I think that's one of the things we've learned, is that you know, people like me have spent all these ta- all these years saying the stock market is not the economy, the stock market is not the economy. And uh, um, it turns out the public has the same view. There's basically been no relationship between what happens to stocks and, and public opinion, which makes sense because uh, the great majority of stocks are held by a small number of people. For most people, what matters is jobs. Uh, it, what matters is government programs that support their incomes or, and their health care. Uh, the fact that the Dow is or the S&P are hitting new highs doesn't do anything for the person who's out of work because, uh, because of a pandemic. Yeah, it's just not a reason to be complacent. Let's hope lawmakers in DC uh, no, understand I mean, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stock. The, the thing is that people, uh, well, the people who are watching your show, you know, and people uh, uh, that that I hang out with, are much more invested, both uh, literally and psychologically, in the stock market um, than, if I can say, real Americans. You know, the 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 median voter is basically has almost no stake in the stock market. And uh, uh, if the stock market were a good indicator of what was happening to the economy at large, that might be different, but it isn't. Uh, as the old, the old line, the stock market predicted nine of the last five recessions. The stock market is just not the economy. <laughs> nine of the last five. Paul, always yeah. fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great Paul Brookman there. Take care. Neil you too. All right, coming up next, as the clock is ticking on any deal to buy TikTok, we asked the company's head of U.S. policy when it might happen and if. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the last trading day of the week. And we are higher across the board. As you can see, the S&P 500 rising to records. For the sixth straight session, the Dow in positive territory for the year once again. Two, yes, there we are, 28,550, the level. Investors bracing for a number of key market events too. Tesla and Apple split their stock after the closing bell today. The newly revamped Dow will debut therefore on Monday and we'll see whether the three new Dow recruits can give the index a further boost Coca-Cola shares, meanwhile, on the rise in early trading. The soft drink giant announcing a major restructuring before the bell today. It's offering voluntary buyouts to some 4,000 workers. Uh, That stock adding some three quarters of 1% and hacking in the news this Friday too. Elon Musk confirming that Russian hackers tried to get a Tesla employee to install ransomware 
in the compa- into the uh, company's systems. And hackers also disrupting New Zealand stock exchange for a fourth straight session. The government now asking its spy agency to investigate. All right, tech remains on the minds too. Let's return to one of our top stories. Walmart teaming up with Microsoft in the potential acquisition of TikTok US. Here's the rather turbulent history since the app was launched back in 2017. In February last year, TikTok owner ByteDance agreed to pay a fine of nearly $6 million to US regulators over illegal collection of personal information from minors. That didn't stop the app's ever-growing popularity. A month later, it reached its first billion downloads. Today, it surpassed 2 billion and has over 100 million users in the United States alone. But just a few weeks ago, Donald Trump said he would potentially ban the app, saying a Chinese firm shouldn't be allowed access to data on millions of Americans. And then just this week, newly appointed CEO Kevin Mayer announced he was leaving. Wow, it's been busy. Michael Beckerman is vice president and head of U.S. public policy at TikTok and joins us now. Michael, fantastic to have you with us. I just want to start with the very short term, the exit of the CEO, uh, Mr. Mayer, seen as presiding over an imminent deal. Can you give us any information? Hey, thanks for for having me. Um, You know, Kevin, Kevin is terrific, obviously came in for um, a, a global role, and uh, that's not how things are are shaking out. And so we wish him the best. Uh, it's uh, he's leaving on on good terms, and we have a very strong uh, leadership team here in the United States uh, that's continuing to focus on the app and make sure that uh, we're providing the great, authentic, and joyful, entertaining content on TikTok that our users and creators love. Michael, it's clearly been a turbulent few weeks and months. How's morale at TikTok? That's a great question. Um, our employees are optimistic and we're confident that um, we're going to be around for, for the long haul. We have an amazing, amazing team, particularly in the United States um, and certainly um, around the world for all the markets. And we're, we just focus on the work that we're doing every single day. And TikTok continues to grow, continues to bring uh, joy to people that are creating content and, and consuming content on a daily basis. And that's really what we focus on. Um, and we try to ignore a lot of the external noise that's going on. A lot of the influencers that we've spoken to point to the innovation, they point to the culture, the accessibility of the platform, um, the tools. If TikTok US or in some kind of form is then working with Walmart and Microsoft in the future, will that suppress innovation? Will that change anything about the culture in your mind? Not at all. I mean, the TikTok is so unique because of the culture, because of the creativity, because of the unique opportunities it has for creators to reach such a massive audience in a way that is just not possible on any other app. Um, as much as they try to copy, you can't really copy the community that we have. And so uh, that's why there's such such interest in this, frankly, is because the community is so great. The app is running um, in a way that no one else is able to duplicate. And so that's not going to change at all. And we're confident that the same app that our creators love and come to every day and that people come to um, in hundreds of millions around the world uh, will, will not change. Michael, do you think it is just a case of of TikTok through its ownership of of a Chinese company, ByteDance, just got caught up in the the geopolitics here between the United States and China? Or do you think, as the Wall Street Journal has recently suggested, perhaps other tech giants like Facebook tried to undermine you because they saw strong competition? Do you think that's possible? That's a a great question. Uh, Clearly, we are uh, in the middle of um, major geopolitical headwinds. There's a lot of confusion 
um, about about the app. TikTok is not available in China. Um, we're run by a strong team in the in, in the U.S. and in other markets around the world for those markets. And so, um, you know, we we are just trying to get the facts out there. And, and uh, clearly, um, from the Wall Street Journal uh, report and others, um, some of our com- competitors would like to see us exit the market because we are being so successful and because we are growing so much. But again, uh, we focus on making sure the app can remain joyful and entertaining. And, and that's what we focus on. We, tr- we try to ignore uh, particularly competitors with with um, with tactics that often are, are not so, not so great, but uh, we're, we're still successful. And so really, I guess, doesn't matter. Michael, is the app safe for, for U.S. consumers? Because I know you guys have said, look, to the U.S. administration, China doesn't have access. But if China asked for American user data, surely you would have to pass it over. Absolutely. Absolutely not on, on the China piece. Absolutely that we're safe. Uh, TikTok doesn't operate in China. We have a world-class chief security officer. Our servers are in Virginia. And we said time and time again that that uh, we will not share information with the Chinese government. We, we go by legal requests in the United States. And the fact that TikTok does not operate in China uh, really answers the question there. Um, in fact, you don't have to take our word for it. You know, the CIA in the United States did an analysis of TikTok, and they said it's not a security threat. Um, some of the world's leading security experts have have looked through this, and they said the data that um, exists on TikTok and the TikTok app itself has absolutely no value um, from a uh, foreign or, or domestic security purpose at all. It's an entertainment app, and um, if folks want to be uh, want to want to really focus on threats from from other markets or, or threats abroad, focusing on TikTok is just missing the boat. And so TikTok absolutely is safe. Um, and we're confident of that. Do you think the situation with TikTok could be different under a different administration? Clearly, TikTok's now suing the US administration. The perception is perhaps trying to push this past the election date. Do you think that would make a difference, Michael? Look, this is not this is not about politics. We're we're in a very unique place uh, globally um, with uh, very very high level geopolitics that are at stake, and and we just focus on the facts. Um, and the fact is that TikTok is a safe platform. Uh, we, we work to secure it every single day with an incredible team in the U.S. Um, and, and, and that's it. I mean, this is an entertainment app that has grown and is beloved by people all over the world. And, and that really is, is what matters. And, and we try not to focus on, on politics or speculate mm-hmm. on elections. And if the deal goes through, will you drop the lawsuit against the U.S. administration? Yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to speak to our our legal strategy, but um, certainly we want to have um, options on the table. And and again, like the focus and what we're confident of is that TikTok is going to be around to stay for users. Um, and I'll I'll leave it at that. For some of the influencers again that that we've spoken to, they say actually look part of their strategy is to diversify to be on a number of different platforms. As much as they've loved the growth of TikTok and what the platform represents, do you worry that some of your big influencers might perhaps go somewhere else just because of the noise surrounding TikTok? How do you convince those guys to to remain? Whatever happens here, the quality of the app, um, the quality of the community, the the, the views they're getting and, and the product that we have. Uh, you know, many competitors are trying to, to copy and duplicate uh, features and, and different parts of, of TikTok, but you cannot copy and you can't duplicate the community and you can't uh, duplicate the way that we're able to operate on a daily basis. And so um, what we hear from creators that, that you know, dip their toes into other apps and, um, and try other things, that's completely fine. And, and uh, we don't have any problems with that. But what we hear from them is that 
they love TikTok and TikTok is still number one for them and it's still number one uh, for the millions of people that use it every single day. Um, and that's that for us is what matters the most. So your message to uh, particularly to users at this moment in the United States is um, we're going nowhere, whatever happens. That's right. We're focused on we're focused on sticking around. Uh, we're optimistic um, and 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 we have different pieces in place um, to ensure that we can continue to offer this joyful and entertaining experience for you know over 100 million Americans that rely on it every single day. And it's really been um, a bright spot, uh, not only to the community that are watching um, videos and creating videos every day, but also for the economy. Um, I think that's a piece that is missed often. Um, we have over 1,500 jobs in the United States have grown very rapidly even during the, the pandemic and have plans to hire another 10,000 people um, in the United States over the next uh, year or two um, in, in a lot of different areas um, you know, outside of California and New York and um, we'll be in Michigan and Florida and Texas and other places. And so we're really growing and, and we're, we're confident that we'll be able to continue to do that. Michael, great to chat to you. Come back and speak to us soon, please. Uh, Michael Beckerman, Vice President and Head of U.S. Public Policy at TikTok. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right, still ahead. Hundreds of thousands of homes without power and the risk of further devastation ahead. The latest as Laura tears through the United States. Welcome back to First Move. Look and leave. That's the message from the mayor of Lake Charles, Louisiana, to people returning after Hurricane Laura. He says he has no time frame for how long it will take to recover. More than 750,000 homes across Louisiana, Texas and Arkansas are without power. And at least six people have lost their lives. Martin Savage is on the scene in Lake Charles, Louisiana and joins us now. Martin, great to have you with us. Scenes of devastation. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. I mean, the damage is extensive and it's definitely severe. It's very much like you would see in a tornado, which if you're not familiar with those are extremely powerful storms here in the United States, but they tend to be geographically very narrowly focused. This is that kind of damage, but spread over a massive kind of area. Uh, In the background, that was a restaurant you can see that has been absolutely crushed. And if you follow me this way, well, its next door neighbor here was an insurance company and it too has suffered a devastating blow and if you continue to follow along well you see the reason why this is one of those broadcast antennas very large one that came toppling down at the height of the storm that just shows you some of the power and then we have this drone footage to show you this is another incredible scene it's a high-rise building located in downtown Lake Charles and and look at the windows knocked out almost every other one uh, this is a clear example of why you do not do what they call vertical evacuation in other words get up into tall buildings when you have powerful hurricanes moving through the area almost looks like a something out of an apocalyptic kind of film you already pointed out the mayor is saying look and leave that's because the electricity is out throughout the entire city and not likely to be back for weeks because the entire infrastructure electrically was just dismantled by this storm. And then on top of that, there's no running water. And that too could be a problem for some time because a number of the pumping plants suffered severe damage. So they can't get those online. They can't get the water pressure up. So no water, no electricity. Those are essentials for life. That's why if you've evacuated, the mayor is saying this is not really a good time come on back. Six deaths, which 
as tragic as those are, that's remarkably low given the amount of damage that we're seeing. And it was 15 years ago next month that this area suffered greatly from Hurricane Rita. Um, it took them a long time to recover from that. And now, well, they have to start all over again. Julia? Yeah, and clean up complicated by COVID, of course, too. Our hearts go out to everyone involved. Martin, thank you for being there. I'm Martin Savage reporting. All right, when we return, an emotional interview with the father of Jacob Blake, who says his son is shackled to his bed in the hospital and discusses what his son says went through his mind as he was shot by police. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. In the next hour, the 17-year-old charged with killing two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is expected to appear in court for the first time. He now faces six charges, including first-degree murder. Meanwhile, Jacob Blake's family say his leg is shackled to his hospital bed, despite Blake being paralyzed from the waist down. Earlier, Jacob Blake Sr. spoke to CNN about his son's condition. His main concern uh, when we were talking was his sons. He was, in his mind, it's I. He just wanted to get, he wanted to get his sons out of harm's way. But before he could get them out of the car, he said he was just counting shots. He said he was counting them. And I guess he went, he lost consciousness around number four or five. The oldest in the car was eight. And the youngest in the car was three. And have you talked to them? Oh, they're with me every day. What do they say? What? How are they coping uh, with this this morning? They, the oldest, every day, his question is, uh, Daddy, why did the police... Uh, they call me Papa. And all my grandkids call me Papa or Pop Pop. So they, he said, Papa, why, why did they shoot my daddy in the back? Where's daddy? They want their father because he was a part of their life every day. He, he's a person. He's a, human, he's a human being. He's not an animal. He's, he's, he's a human. But my son has not been afforded the rights of a human. He's not been treated like a human. He's a father. He's not a deadbeat dad. He's a father. That's with his children every day. The family of Jacob Blake is taking part today in a new march on Washington, exactly 57 years after Martin Luther King Jr. roused the consciousness of the nation with his I Have a Dream speech calling for racial equality. Tens of thousands of people are expected to gather at the Lincoln Memorial this morning. Suzanne Marveau joins us now. And uh, Suzanne, I think achieving that dream today feels like a long way off, and that's the message. Julia, really is amazing when you think about it because uh, it was August 28th, 1963, the March on Washington attracting more than 200,000 people calling for equality and freedom, racial justice. And I speak to so many people here who are, the thousands who are waiting to just get into this area, into the National Mall area, and the issues are the same. It is about uh, police brutality. It is about voting rights. It is about jobs. I mean, you just heard the, the sound there, the, the, the father torn up. It is about uh, Jacob Blake, that man 
shot seven times in the back. And just to give you a sense of what this march is about, it is being dubbed the Get Your Knee Off Our Necks March. That in reference to George Floyd, the man who had a, a police uh, knee to his neck eight minutes and 46 seconds before he died. These are the kinds of stories that people are telling. We're going to hear many, many more of those family members of those victims. Julia also had a chance to talk to Martin Luther King III. Uh, he talked about his father's legacy, the speech, the famous I Have a Dream speech, and he also really thought about what would he think today, what our society is about and what we have become. Take a listen. Dad would be very proud of the fact that tragically after George Floyd's death, the tragedy caused the largest civil rights demonstrations on the planet ever. I think that if he just showed up today, he would be greatly disappointed in the conduct of our behavior, particularly uh, the conduct that, starts, that, that is starting at, at the White House level. And Julia, this demonstration very different than previous ones because of the restrictions around COVID-19. Everybody required to wear a mask. Everybody has their temperature taken and this man here to be allowed into the area, encouraged to social distance. And uh, they say that it's not that important to be here physically. If you are watching, all you have to do is take some sort of action for racial justice. Julia? Yeah, absolutely. Suzanne Malvo, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll continue to follow all the stories throughout programming today. Have a safe weekend, guys. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.